you got to pay it forward. So just because it didn't look like you coming into this place means it should look different behind you. And so that means putting your money where your mouth is, whatever small dollars you have to invest, investing in that next generation of entrepreneurs. I think that there is a ton of data that will tell you that minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses have great returns but don't have access to capital. So put your money where your mouth is, number one. Number two, you got to see what other people didn't see in you. The Pathfinder Podcast is presented to you by Ansarado. Ansarado is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A, capital raising, divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Since 2005, Ansarado has been trusted in over 24,000 transactions and powered over $1 trillion worth of deals. Ansarado is a secure space that includes workflow tools, AI-powered data rooms, built-in question and answer and integration frameworks. It's the data room trusted by modern dealmakers. You can start for free today at Ansarada.com. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me, Ansarada.com for your next winning outcome. Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada. Now here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Today, I'm joined by Akila Ramavasegi. Akila is the COO of Goldman Sachs Investment Banking Division, where she runs an operational strategy focused on international expansion and growth in new products. Akila is a trailblazer who has prioritized using technology and automation to streamline workflow and relieve stress. And she joins me now to talk all about her deal-making philosophy and why mentoring women and people of color across the industry is so important to her. Welcome, Akila. Woo, quite an intro. <laughs> well, I, I, I had to give it all. You know, I just like put all that information out there. Oh, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but my sister's name is Akila. And I think you, oh, I you might be one of the only people that I know that's named Akila, which I think is a fantastic name. And she's a wonderful woman. And so I can only imagine all the great things that you've done. And from all my research and all the background, I mean, I had to throw all that information and insight so people actually <laughs> knew, like, okay. Aquila is a big deal. <laughs> well, thank you. I love that. I hope I can uh, I can do you proud. Of course. And and how many podcasts have you been on? Oh my god! I just want to uh, know. Grand, I, I just a little birdie told me something. Grand total, grand total of one. This is your uh, first this one is ever. This is, the, this is the debut. This is it. You're getting the first look. You, you had to have been <laughs> asked to be on several podcasts before. So why join us today? You know, Dahani, I think you have a really unique ability of connecting with somebody in the lobby of a hotel in an East Village bar, <laughs> and somehow you make people want to say Are you taking them yes. back? Are you taking them back? <laughs> I'm taking it back. Taking it back to the first time we met. But it is, yeah, you have the ability to make people to say yes, and that's a good gift. Well, I appreciate you being with us today. And last time I saw you was at the Milken Conference, and you know, we just kind of struck up this great conversation, and you reminded me of of days gone past. And now we've all, you know, just done different things and ended up in different places. And for you, you know, spending time as CEO at, at Goldman Sachs, I mean, that's a huge opportunity and you've executed on it beautifully and done incredibly well. So congratulations on that. And, and as I was reading through some more of the notes, I realized that you started off, you know, you, you started off as an intern for Goldman Sachs. That's right. What part of your life kind of compelled you to become an intern at Goldman Sachs and then continue that path to getting into the banking world? Yeah. So look, 
I was an accidental banker. I was a political theory major at Princeton. I wrote my thesis on nuclear nonproliferation. Wait, wait, pause, pause. You're going to have to just describe uh, (laughs) that. I'm just going to stop you right there. I know you're going to go into like this whole diatribe about being an intern, but you just threw out some big words that most people, when you see the word nuclear, most people just like just went past. So just explain that to everybody, please. I spent a lot of time in my early days of Princeton studying war theory and, you know, the importance of, you know, at that time, nuclear weapon theory was a very big, hot topic. And who had the right to have access to that technology? Who didn't? There's a lot of debate. And obviously, that debate's coming back in full force today, given today's geopolitical climate. But that was, as I said, accidental banker. I took a, a finance class. It was a derivatives portfolio theory class. And a little bit accidental, I have Asian parents and said, you should probably study something practical. And I was good at it and I liked it. And I thought, wow, maybe I'm good at math. And so I applied to two internships, Lehman and Goldman. I got one and I I got both, but I ended up picking Goldman, thankfully, in retrospect. And I spent the first couple of years of my career in what was the first early days of our financing group, which was these public side trading and capital raising businesses that just come over to the banking side to advise clients. And so I helped structure interest rate, currency, credit derivatives in the very early days of my career. And so you got deep into these discussions. You got deep into theory. And all of a sudden, you just sort of move into this world of derivatives. And were your parents proud? Did they find like, this is the place that we always hoped you'd end up? I think my parents up until, and remember, I I was a, I ran our natural resources debt and risk management business for Goldman, I think up until honestly, five years ago, they thought I was a stockbroker. So the answer is <laughs> no, not, and nothing's enough. No, they're, they're proud of who the person I am, but I think they still don't quite know what I do. <laughs> well, well, hopefully through this podcast, you can uh, kind of explain it to them that you're not a nuclear scientist any longer. You know, you do run a, a pretty important book for Goldman Sachs. And, and as a daughter of Indian and Korean immigrants, how did that aspect kind of you know, of your upbringing impact the way that you approach even work today. I know you and I talked about this in the prior conversation. I think there's a very uniquely immigrant experience of leaving your life that you had before in hopes of trying to start something new Hmm. and sort of starting over. And so I think that mentality, that hustle, that desire to learn, that desire to put in the time and the effort that you see, you grow up seeing your parents do that. You know, my dad started his practice when I was a little kid. And I remember watching him, the first office, I was at the office every day. I think I was probably doing like child labor, helping doing the mailing and, you know, putting together the filing cabinets. And you kind of see somebody build a business from the ground up and you see the time and sweat that is required to get there. And then you fast forward. And I can remember sitting in, you know, I first got a full-time offer and sitting in my training. And, you know, it's interesting, like, People think about investment banking training and there's like funny internet memes about what it's like to be an investment banking analyst. But even back then, you know, you'd see some people would take it, you know, not so seriously. They're like, oh, it's like a vacation. I'm in New York City. I'm getting a paycheck or what have you. Some people would be, you know, studying furiously. And I remember sitting in the middle of this very weird international crew because, you know, people from all over the world, their managers are all over the world and sitting next to a guy. and, And he said to me, and it stuck with me all these years later, He said, Akila, my whole life I have paid people and worked hard so they would educate me. 
Mm. I had to study super hard to get into this, the best high school. I had to get a bunch of uh, scholarships and loans to go to the best college. And, you know, so I could actually afford to go to the best school. And here I am at Goldman Sachs. I'm getting to learn from the very best investment bankers in the entire world. And they're paying me to do it. And I just, it sticks with me, you know, almost 20 years later, I really try to think about like what a grateful experience I have. And maybe it is because I'm a daughter of immigrants. Maybe it is because I, you know, do bring that level of hustle and appreciation every day for what I have. And I get the chance to learn every day. And like, that's pretty cool, especially now. And I'm still learning. It is phenomenal how that learning journey continues. And I think that becomes sort of like a foundation of excitement, right? Because anytime you go into a situation, you just already know everything, then, you know, maybe that curiosity isn't sparked or it doesn't kind of continue. But when you're in a, a world that curiosity becomes evergreen, then every single thing that you see, you kind of look at things from a childlike perspective. And, you know, they always talk about young people when they're when they're raising their hand as kindergartners, they're talking about like, what do you want to be? They want to be an artist, right? Because they always want to paint these pretty pictures and start to take in and ingest information in a way that continues that that love of curiosity. That's That's kind of how I've viewed my life. So you didn't actually spend time underneath your desk, like sleeping for like one, you know, like, you know, an hour every night, you actually, you know, got out and saw some different things. That's, you know, but that's the, that's the investment banking world. And it's a lot different than the football world because we're spending a lot of time on the field. But, you know, in, in this podcast, we, we like to learn, you know, what leaders like yourself, innovators like yourself and trailblazers like yourself, like what makes them tick. So is it, that curiosity that really makes you tick? And how does that fall into your deal-making mindset? Yeah, I mean, like, look, at the end of the day, I think you can't get into this industry if you don't like problems and challenges. Mm. And I think most people are pretty competitive. And, you know, I played, not like you, I, I definitely played sports my whole life. I have a competitive mindset. You know, I'm constantly, if I'm not competing against the next guy, I'm competing against myself. And so I do think there is that element of, you know, like going out to win one thing that's really fun about, you know, the deals that we've been able to put together over the years is where is your value add? So like when I first started out covering clients, I look like I look like. I don't look like a lot of the big energy management teams that are out there. And I remember being like, what's going to be my edge? What will set me apart? You know, especially when you walk into that boardroom where, you know, and again, I, I covered energy and power companies for the most of my career. And a lot of the management teams are, you know, pretty senior people. A lot of times they're not always Asian and <laughs> Korean and Indian women sitting across the table from you. And so, you know, I, and I look, I used to look really young. I think I still do, hopefully. And, you know, I remember being like, how are th this feeling of what's my value add? What am I going to bring? And for mm -hmm. me, it was always like, you know, if you may think I look, look young, you may think that maybe I'm really in my career, but you know, what you want is you want me on my team because I'm going to give you the best idea. My superpower is that I can problem solve. I can listen. I can take a lot of information. I can figure out a solution and I get stuff done. And like, it's simple. And so like, you know, you're going to want me on your team. And that part, that like mindset early on of like feeling like I had to earn my way into every single situation it sort of like, it keeps you going and it's fun. And then like you end up getting into bigger and better deals. You end up like having much more interesting conversations. I had the privilege of advising on some of the most important acquisitions in the power space and the energy space, big capital raises globally. I mean, the deals that I've been able to work on, you know, were not earned day one. 
it's sort of mm. the reputation you built through the years. And, and I, that kind of keeps you going. It's that competitive drive to get better. And when you get into a sticky spot, figuring it out. And so for me, like problem solving is what I can do well. I don't play golf. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not like a huge sports person. I would have known more about your background. <laughs> but I, you know, what I can do is I can solve problems and I can do it pretty well if I put my mind to it. See, the way that I sort of think about or contextualize what you're talking about is like getting ready for me to go out into my first Michigan football game. And here I am, this like scrawny little 205 pound middle linebacker that's trying to play amongst the big guys. And I'm just like, I got to use my speed. I got to use my, you know, my savvy nature and I got to use what I've learned in the game before yep. I got there so that the big 345, six, six, you know, guy won't just like crush me. So I, I think it's always taking some notes from what you learned in the past, apply them to where you are in your current situation, and then just continually iterating through that creative process, much like you, you talked about. So how, how do you, with all of that, how do you remain passionate? Because I would imagine as your career continued to progress, even those challenges continue to get even that much more difficult because you didn't go into it having, you know, first $100 million deal, $200 million deal, billion dollar deal, billion, $2 billion dollar, dollar deal. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm just, I'm just kind of going incrementally. Right. And so just as much as the rooms and the dynamics change, so did sometimes the, the figures and what was at stake. And so how did you get yourself hyped up, remain passionate about it. And most importantly, what was your icebreaker going into the room? Oh, good question. I don't know that I have a good icebreaker. You're going to have to bring me one. I mean, usually, you know, it's not a cold, if you're doing your job right, it's not a cold meeting, right? Mm. Like I think preparation is everything. And so for me, you know, I'm very much, a am the type of banker that gets to know people really, really well. And I do a lot of sidebars. I do a lot of prep conversations. They aren't surprised. I make a lot of other people look good in front of their bosses, in front of their board. So there is no surprise. There is no cold open because there shouldn't be. If we're having that conversation, hopefully it's based on many, many other conversations that have happened before. So it's a good question. I don't know if you have a good cold open. You'll have to tell me. <laughs> so you like to stack the deck. You got all the, all the people in the periphery ready to dance before even the song comes on. <laughs> Right. You like this? You like more, I'm putting it together? You I got people ready more. to dance. You're like, look, hey, look, I'm going to put this song on. And when you guys come out, we're all going to do this like two step together. And it's going to be just like amazing in terms of his coordinate. But that's an amazing gift. Right. That's a scientific process that one has to go through in order to make sure everybody's comfortable. I mean, that is I feel as though, you know, people will take this as like one of the key elements in terms of like that deal making mindset, because it doesn't just fall. The deal doesn't get done by one person. 100%. The deal gets done by several people. 100%. I was actually just going to say, I think the thing I love most about doing deals is actually the collaborative and creative process mm. in that you're exactly right. Like there is no one savior. There is no one uniform idea. There's not one person that can ever get anything done. It takes a whole orchestra of people to come up with the best ideas. And so I think it's more about, are you going to humble yourself so that you listen and hear all of the different pieces? What will everything that you should be thinking about to take into consideration and then coming up with the best ideas and doing it mm. collaboratively so that everyone feels like they own it. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you're advising, you know, one of the deals I worked on was a really ambitious one that was buying the biggest transmission network in the country. And I remember the discussions we'd have at the board level, and it was a really ambitious acquisition and it was going to be really difficult. And there was a whole bunch of twists and turns and like that deal could have died four times. 
but it doesn't because what we do is we is advice. And so to be the trusted advisor, you kind of got to be in the trenches together. It is iterative. Sometimes it gets a little bit messy. And so that's why you do need to have, I think, a collaborative process, because at the end of the day, like if you lose the trust of your client, then it's all over. Was that particular deal one of the ones that had the greatest impact on you or was there another another deal? There have been a bunch of deals. I'd say one of the deals that had the most impact was actually from the Midwest. So as you know, Dahani, I'm from Missouri. Midwest is the best, baby. Midwest is the best. Uh, I'm from a really small town, Liberty, Missouri, growing up. And so being able to do a deal in my backyard, you know, sleep at my parents' house, go to the boardroom in the morning, like that was actually pretty meaningful for me. And so I think at the end of the day, there's so many different things, but it's all about people. It's all about sort of like having impact and and yeah, I've had a lot of really meaningful deals, but that one probably was tied with the one where I got to do some stuff in my, uh, my home state. <laughs> the Pathfinders podcast is presented to you by Ansarada. Ansarada is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A, capital raising, divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Ansarada has just launched Freemium with the world's first online data room quote. Now you can get a free data room and quote in just three clicks and just 15 seconds. There's no need to wait. Get your room open straight away, no matter what stage you're at. Deal marketing, deal preparation, or due diligence. And here's the best bit. Usage fees only start when the deal goes live. All the top M&A firms and investment banks are jumping on it. That's because there is no risk, just reward. Pretty cool, right? Check it out at ensarada.com slash quote. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me. Ensarada. Dot com for your next winning outcome. So what are the differences when you kind of look at East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, Deep South, Southeast, New England, in terms of the dynamic that even that that room brings and how you approach mm. the deals in those rooms? Because you know, I was thinking, you know, one of my friends was working you know, some, some groups in, in New England and the way that he approached that room was completely different than if he worked with a team out of Arkansas or Alabama hmm. or even out of Nevada or out of California. I was just kind of off the top of my head, just wondering, you know, how you thought about geographic influence on that cultural conversation in terms of doing the deal and your approach that might be a little bit different. You know, I don't know if I've ever thought of it like regionally say in the States, but yeah, I've done some deals in the Middle East and there's a different way that you would approach deals in the Middle East as you would in Europe. There is a cultural overlay, but I think at the end of the day, it all comes back to, you got to know your client. You got to know, you got to listen, you got to observe, you got to take all that information in and figure out what ultimately, what do people care about? What's the one thing that really scares the crap out of them that they don't want to have happen? What's Mm. the one thing that's going to make them great? And like, how do you kind of make sure that you kind of balance all the pieces so that you give them the right advice, but through the lens that's going to resonate. And so it's less, you're you're totally right. There's some geographical, especially, you know, big regions like the Middle East or Europe versus the US or some cultural characteristics. But I think it's less about that and more about the individual, you know, decision makers and who they trust and why. You know, I always tell people, people always go to the CEO or the CFO because they're like, that's the decision maker. It may be, right? That that is ultimately in many of these deals. But a lot of times they listen to somebody. And so mm. I always encourage people, especially when they're earlier in their career, figure out who, you know, the key decision maker actually listens to and trusts. 
Like that's the person you got to like really become your best friend. So you can really understand how that organization works. You know, especially people earlier in their career, they really, you know, underestimate. They're like, oh, I got to like get to this level and then this level and then this level. And then, then I'm going to be able to advise, you know, at that, you know, the board member and the CEO. And like, the reality is like, I had a lot of impact really in my career. I remember one of my closest friends who's a client of mine, we became friends when I think she was like a corporate analyst or a, you know, assistant treasurer type level. And she just, she's super smart. She worked her butt off and she always had the numbers right. And people trusted her. And mm. I remember like being able, she would like give me information, be like, you should think of it this way or this other bank came in. And so, you know, that's, that's a huge value. If you're a junior member of a team, be able to send back to your team, well, gosh, did you guys think about this? Or another bank was pitching it this way, or, you know, these are considerations you should think about. And so, you know, I think it's really about how do you develop trust and how do you listen to who are going to be the people that ultimately have influence? And sometimes it's not always the people with their name on the board. I hope everybody, while you're you're listening to Akila talk, you took notes on that because, (laughs) you know, when you go into a room, everybody wants to get the card from the CEO, but everybody forgets the fact that there are 20 other people behind that CEO that's actually allowing that CEO to produce and there's somebody who's a close confidant within that small group of people, and maybe 20, maybe 30, maybe 10, maybe five, that sees and hears everything. You know, you can kind of compare it to some of the movies that you watch, right? You know, or the TV shows that are out there when there's like a chief strategist or like the hand of the king. I don't want to go down that route, but like, <laughs> I love those movies, right? <laughs> right? Because there's someone that's the strategist. There's someone back there, but that's the world of which you've lived in. So I, I, I'm wondering, you know, from you know, the, the natural resource companies and sectors like, you know, energy, power and metals, what were some of those challenges you faced? And did you learn some of the lessons that you're talking about right now from that industry? hundred percent, all of them. I mean, like, I think that, you know, most of the clients I covered, there's a lot of technical complexities. So whether it's regulated power companies, there's a big regulatory framework, depending upon which state they live in and, you know, if they have any commodity exposure or not. For some of the big energy companies that are more commodity exposed, whether they're upstream, midstream, downstream, there's different there's different things to think about. So, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces. I'd say, especially for companies that are more commodity exposed, you know, there's this sort of operating model and how it's resilient through different markets, different commodity, you know, geopolitical events, what have you. And so there's so much complexity going on that people need a lot of information at mm. all times so they can make the best decision real time. And so, you know, the best leaders, I think, in those spaces don't govern in a way that, like, you know, people can't approach them. They govern in a way that invites information so they can make the best decision they can at that point. And so I I learned that. I watched that. And you see, like, the very, very best leaders are the ones that make the hard call. But it's, you know, they're prepared and they know how to get information and they know who to get it from at the right time so they can make that best decision. And you just hope you become one of them. Well, I mean... Clearly, by by running strategy, you're already implementing a lot of your not only your your thinking, but also like technology and automation to streamline workflow, right? And relieve stress among the, you know, what you talk about is relieving stress among the investment bankers like you oversee. So I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if anyone can relieve stress. I I mean, I, I, I mean, look, if if you can make things efficient, yes, if you can make things timely if you can uh, reduce you know what, what what you could say is like if you could reduce the amount of energy that it takes in order to accomplish a goal by implementing some level of technology and automation 
that makes everybody's life that much better. That means that that 40 hour work week can go down to like a 30 hour work week and you can actually get back home and you can use that time in order to kind of rebuild yourself. But talk about why you feel that type of approach is really critical. Well, I might put it slightly differently, which is, you know, we are the number one investment banking franchise. We have been for many, many years running. It's like probably our 20th year of our you know lead in M&A. And I think that is an really critical point. What do we do? We don't sell widgets. We sell advice. So I think a lot about what actually matters in a transaction, right? What matters oftentimes isn't, you know, the page 101 of the very thick blue book. It's not the standard market update page and everybody else can do. What actually matters is the advice. And so, you know, 30 years ago, maybe more, they, you know, you could plot a stock chart and the exchange ratio for a CEO and do it by hand and like give it to Mm. them and that'd be value add. That's not value add anymore. You can get that on your phone in under four milliseconds. And so for us, I got to think about what's actually going to matter to the client. If we could take any of the work, the thing that frustrates me is the work of investment making, the actual like making of the books and the analysis. It hasn't changed fundamentally in 20 years, but technology has. Like I'm not doing my job. And so I think a lot about like what goes into an analysis, what actually matters to the client. And so if I'm able to take something that, you know, is a page that every single bank produces is a market update page that everybody looks at or a standard analysis and I can automate it, that's not actually what I'm getting paid for. What I'm getting paid for is the really smart data and analytics so I could actually spot a trend that others can't. I'm getting paid Mm. for actually the time that's spent thinking about the universe expansively of like what would actually be an outside the box idea or the really creative tax structure or the really creative derivative and hedge. And and that's the stuff that matters. And so if we can spend a little bit more time thinking about that and a little less time thinking about making something that's very standard that other banks can produce, then like we're going to start getting into the right place. That's kind of more how I think about the, the role of kind of automation and technology and investment banking. Can you give me like an example of how you've put this to work? Yeah. So perfect example, like this is like very rote, but like there are certain charts and pages that are used with a lot of standard, you know, pages, whether it's a stock chart or, you know, different, you know, interest rate trading charts and what have you. And so in the old days you go to, you know, a Bloomberg terminal and you download the data and then you'd send it over and you'd format it in Excel and you'd build some chart and then you'd kind of format it. And like, that's a very manual process. If we can just backend it. And so it's actually like a data feed. So it's already formatted into a page that's automatically updated. And it's something that we use so frequently that takes a whole lot of that like manual work out. And just think if you do that thousands, thousands, thousands of time, that will actually save time and energy. So it's kind of like my lawyer reading over documents time and time again, and they just read it like this fast. It's because (laughs) of the fact that they've seen it like 35 times over. And I'm just looking at it like, I don't know exactly what it's saying. Right. So, so it's about being a little bit more familiar with what you believe you've seen so many times before and just kind of cutting to the most efficient way to kind of get the best piece of information that's going to allow you to make the best decision possible. Totally. I think it's about getting the best information. That information is going to be a basis, but that's not going to be the make or break part of the discussion. Right. So anything that's not going to be make or break on the actual discussion, then like, where can we find ways to make that more efficient? I think maybe one day I could get into the business of just getting paid for advice. I think is, I love this idea. I mean, I, look, I, I, I know I'm like making what you do 
like that much easier than it really is. But I, I like this notion of just giving people ideas and being able to, I mean, that's amazing. Well, you gotta, and then you gotta execute them. Then no, you gotta, you gotta execute them. And I, and I think, <laughs> and I think the other thing is like, you can give as much advice as possible, but if people don't trust you, then it doesn't really matter. And people trust you. And that's how you're able to be as successful as you are. And also in Fortune Magazine, you're a 40 under 40 list. Oh, by the way, you know, <laughs> for those that don't know that, I mean, the list of accomplishments that you've had keep going on and on and on, you know, and, and, and I would say as more young people are getting into investing, what impact do you think it'll have on the market? Cause you know, we've seen over the last couple of months, year that there have been some interesting ways the market has reacted to, you know, younger investors. What do you think the future of that looks like as more people are getting exposed to the market? Hmm, it's a really interesting question. It certainly has changed the dynamic in the sense that, you know, you have a lot more um, democratic usage of market data and, and availability. Mm. Um, I think ultimately, though, companies, and, and I'm old school, I think companies that present value do something that's, you know, adding value to the world, creating cash flow, creating returns for their investors. Like those are the companies ultimately that are going to succeed. And I think technology mm. should have an impact and change sort of like the shape of like what those companies look like. I just ultimately think it just more people in the pool and, you know, the interplay they might have in the markets, like that's not going to be the fundamental that drives value in the long term. What's going to drive value long term is hopefully those new young investors do their homework. They go into the investments that make the most sense. And, you know, I, I just ultimately have to believe that the companies that are run in a way that is responsible and and actually produce things uh, <laughs> and value for the world were the ones that are going to be coming out on top. All right. So you're an old school investor. I heard you. I got it. So for the new school investors and the young people that are looking at the world bright eyed and bushy tailed, like what type of companies do you see as being more popular for the younger generation? So oh, to speak? gosh, Johnny, I'm an investment banker, not an investor. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, what do you see that a lot of people are starting to gravitate towards? I mean, if you had a lot of money right now, you look at things, you told me, cash flow, things that make things, things that are doing things in order to make people's lives better, right? Yeah. But how do you look at younger people in terms of how they're looking at the investment world? Maybe what do you believe that they care about as things that are going to help them? Well, I think there's a lot of curiosity just around kind of digital assets, you know, crypto, Bitcoin, there certainly has been a lot of interest. What I would tell you is, I always think about what is the company trying to solve? Like, is it actually solving a problem and a need? And then what's their unique edge? I.e., like, especially in some, you know, some of the discussions that people are having around some of the, the new technologies coming up around, you know, decentralized finance and, you know, how what is going to be the the role of the digitization of assets? Like, that's not like a new frontier, but I come back to what's that company's edge going to be? Will they be able to mm. figure out the regulatory complexity that's needed to operate the financial services world. Will they? What, what's their unique edge? Will they be able? Do they have a unique fix? And so, you know, it goes back to what's the problem they're trying to solve, and what makes them differentiated versus their comp competition. And so that can apply to to even some of the newer kind of burgeoning technologies that are coming out today. I like that. I think I'm gonna write that down. I'm gonna add it to my <laughs> add to my notes of great conversations that I've been able to have on the pathfinders and you know I, it strikes me 
going to the very beginning of our conversation, we were talking about challenges. We were talking about problem solving. You know, even now as we think about like what does the future look like for those that are investing. You know, as as you've sort of moved through your career, and you know, as being a child of immigrants, being a woman in this industry, tackling the world of natural resources, how did you overcome some of those challenges? And and I'll be more specific. Like, I think people don't think that in those situations you just have to overcome the challenges of the people in the room. Sometimes you have to overcome the challenge of yourself. So how did you overcome the challenge of yourself? I think I'm a work in progress like everybody else. I think, you know, just you got to kind of have a sense of humor and a sense of humility and know where, know who you are. I think that a lot of people, it's funny, and I'm sure you see this more than I do even, but you see people who project a certain way and they want to be taken seriously in a certain way. And I think you kind of just got to know who you are at the end of the day. Like I know who I am. I know what I have to offer. And, you know, hopefully that's good enough. And if it isn't, you know, I'll figure out a way in. And and if not, it won't. But at the end of the day, it's not, it's not life or death. You know, I can always go back. I always remind people that, you know, I'm from a really small town in Missouri. I have a terrific life. I love living in New York City. I have a great team. I have a great job where I get to learn every day. It's like the most important investment bank in the world. We're at the center of everything. It's awesome. But I also would be perfectly happy also you know, back home in small town, Missouri. And, you know, one of my sisters still lives in Kansas city and like, it's all gravy. And if you remind yourself that it's all gravy, then, you know, I think you have like a much lower, you have a much lower threshold for what it needs to be. I think sometimes mm-hmm. people make their career and not to say they don't love my career. And of course I'm an ambitious person, but it's not every single thing about who I am. It doesn't define me. It's something very cool that I get to do. And I'm so grateful that I get to every day. But at the end of the day, like, that's not who I am. And it's just what I do. And I think it's important that, you know, I have little kids that they remember that, that their sense of self-worth comes from what they put out in the world, that they're good people, they have good values. But like, if they get a great job, terrific. It could also go tomorrow. Like, people need to remember that. But at the end of the day, that doesn't define you. That's probably pretty trite, but (laughs) that's the best I can offer. I can't have too much of a, if I'm my own enemy, then like, you know, the rest of the world's going to be pretty hard. So what advice do you have for other women and people of color trying to break into the industry of which you're in? I think you got to figure out what your superpower may be. Like I said, mine Mm. is I work super hard. I listen and I solve problems. It's pretty simple. And, you know, you got to make yourself that person that other people want on their team. And so sometimes that does mean, you know, I prepare probably harder than I should. Probably does mean that I put in a little bit too many hours and, you know, but I'd rather be overprepared than underprepared. And I'd rather have, you know, listen to the conversation so that I can really understand what matters than, you know, trying to come up with my own ideas and always being the superstar. I think uh, a lot of times people take their superpower and hide it in a corner. Mm. I think it's important that you bring your superpower to your day, to your work, to your friends and family every day. I always say you're allowed to talk about one superpower and that's it. You, you can't talk about like two to three, four, because then all of a sudden you're boasting and, you know, you're just bragging and there's some other words you could use. But like you can talk about one superpower, like my superpowers, I can find anybody. It doesn't matter the continent, the state, the city, I can find anybody. If you can talk about one of your superpowers, I think being able to actually maximize that and actually be able to put it into work, an industry of what you love, then you're never working a day in your life. 
right? That's why I was able to find the ball on the football field. Mm. Yeah, that's my superpower. I can find anybody, right? That's a good one. Little little linebacker, little linebacker play here, but you know, you got to be able to do that. So as we wait, 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 one more piece. Sorry for other. But then you said for black for for young people coming up, people of of color. I think you also have to give back. You got to pay forward. So just because it didn't look like you coming into this place means it should look different behind you. And so that means putting your money where your mouth is, whatever small dollars you have to invest, investing in that next generation of entrepreneurs. I think that there is a ton of data that will tell you that minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses have great returns but don't have access to capital. So put your money where your mouth is, number one. Number two, you got to see what other people didn't see in you. And so, you know, help people be that amplifier. And so I've been that person. Once you're in the room, you have to shed light on that. When someone says that person doesn't have that good as technical skills or, oh, they don't speak up as much, be that person that amplifies and knows the real story because you're in the room and they're not yet. And make sure that that room looks different than when you came in. Boom. That, that's what everybody needs to be able to take down. There's a, there's so many notes that have come from, from our conversation. I hope everybody's just got a laundry list of them and they keep them really close because you're just, you're, you know, just the way that you're just pointing them out is just really important. And so one of the things that we always like to, to kind of end with on the Pathfinders is meals and deals. All right. So we want to know a story about your favorite deal and celebratory meal. Oof. I mean, a place that you might have gone, food that might have had, restaurant that you hung out with, or or maybe it was just like in, in the backyard of your house and you just wanted to hang out with some friends. But how do you celebrate? So my favorite, I'll combine it. One of my favorite, and it's not a deal because I think that we often celebrate deals, but we don't celebrate the in-between. And so one of my, I'll combine it. So one of my favorite client dinners was with a very dear friend of mine in Oklahoma, and we ended up having a very long meal. And it was not about celebrating just like, you know, we did something great. It was that we were sort of surviving this world together. Just a client of mine, very dear friend. And many bottles of wine later, I think I ended up at her house in her courtyard, finishing half her wine cellar. And uh, <laughs> and I think those are the <laughs> moments that matter. People talk a lot about like the big moments but for me, it's the small, intimate ones that are the ones that are the most memorable, that are like stick out in my mind is what really fuses people together. And that's probably the, not a very exciting answer, but it's a real one. <laughs> that's all we ask is that you tell the, the truth and tell, tell the, the thoughts and the ideas that are of most true to you. And so I appreciate you coming on the show today. I appreciate you being a Pathfinder. I appreciate your words of advice to women, to people of color, to stating the facts that we need more businesses to thrive and that even in the business that you are, you leave it better than when you got there. And I think one of the most important things you might take away, it's important to arm yourself with the tool belt of experiences that you've had in your life. And as you progress through and as you get better and better, building allies and taking from past relationships and taking from past transactions and experiences and moving forward it continually will become that much easier but as you continue to learn that's when it just starts to crystallize and be that much better because that creativity is at the core and that curiosity is what leads you so i appreciate all the things that you're doing all the ways that you're leaving your industry even that much better and thank you so much for being with us today A 
special thanks again to Akila Ramavasegi for being with us today. It's really amazing to see the work she's doing on international expansion and growth and new products at Goldman Sachs and learn all about how she's mentoring women and people of color across the financial services industry. If you're enjoying the Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find the show. Until next time, I'm Tahani Jones, and this has been the Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. Music.